I would invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 8. Last week we saw the floodwaters rising on the earth in chapter 7, and they prevailed on the earth for 150 days. That is the last verse of chapter 7. And now we start chapter 8, then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. So God turns his attention back to Noah. So we'll read through this chapter, the first 19 verses of it, and then we'll go back through and hit it in a little more detail. Verse 1 of Genesis chapter 8, Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained, and the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of the hundred and fifty days, the waters decreased. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the seventeenth day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So it came to pass, at the end of forty days, that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. Then he sent out a raven, which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. He also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, and she returned into the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. And he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent the dove out from the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return again to him any more. Verse 13, And it came to pass in the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked. And indeed, the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife, and your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth, and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons, and his wife, and his sons' wives with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, and whatsoever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. So we have here the disembarkation from the ark. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing, and all the animals that were with him in the ark. Now, it's not that God ever forgot Noah, Right? God is omniscient. He knows all things. He, he cannot forget something. And besides that, he only had one family to remember at this time. So all of his attention was in effect on Noah and his family. Now, it's not that he forgot Noah, but God turned his attention towards Noah. And he began to act on Noah's family's behalf. And that's really what it means. We can't always describe God's actions really succinctly in our own language. It's very difficult to do that since he is infinite and we are finite. And this is an example of one of those uses of anthropomorphic language, language that we use to try to give our characteristics to God, right? So we can understand what is going on. God remembered Noah. He turned his attention to Noah and began acting on Noah's behalf and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters subsided. So more than likely, and we've talked about this 
previous weeks, there wouldn't have been any strong winds on the earth before the flood. Since wind is generated by uneven temperatures and the air moving through pressure gradients, it's likely that this more uniform climate before the flood would have dramatically reduced the instance of wind on the earth. There may have at most been a slight breeze, but no winds of any real force. In Exodus 14.21, the Lord also used a strong wind to dry up the Red Sea for Moses and the Israelites. It says, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night. And he made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. And this word wind here is ruach. And we've talked about ruach before. And we've mentioned that it can be translated as wind or spirit. And it is translated both ways in the text. Here it's translated wind, but it could be referring to God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit passing over the waters that covered the earth. The Spirit also hovered or vibrated over the waters during creation. So this wouldn't be the first time that the Spirit was active in some way over the waters of the earth. Now, based on the context that we find this word ruach in, wind is most likely the correct translation. And that's exactly what we have in our text. But it is interesting that that word can also mean spirit. And there was another instance of the spirit working with the waters. So I'm comfortable taking wind, but that's an interesting thought for you. The fountains of the deep... And the windows of heaven were also stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. These are the second and third things that God does to assuage this flood. First, he makes the wind pass over the earth. Then he stops the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven. Now, we talked last week about these two sources of the floodwaters, the fountains of the deep, that underground subterranean network of water and the windows of heaven, that vapor canopy that sat above the earth. He made those to stop. And by this time they were probably pretty depleted. And the rain from heaven was restrained. I just, I noticed this and I don't know what to make of it really, but it seems that the windows of heaven being stopped and the rain from heaven restrained, it seems that the text treats those as two separate things. So is that an early instance of the rain that we have coming down, the, the rain from heaven being restrained, and then the windows of heaven referring to the waters of the vapor canopy? Possibly. Um, I wouldn't draw any hard and fast conclusions there though. So God now stops this flow of water onto the earth. He stops it from above and from below. And the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the waters decreased. And this 150 days is in reference to the 150 days mentioned in the last verse of chapter 7. And that says that the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. So here in chapter 8, the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the waters decreased. That is, they began decreasing. And it took much longer after that for the waters to actually dry up on the earth. So this 150 days is in reference to the beginning point when the rain started coming. So from the day that the rain came down on the earth, it was 150 days when the waters prevailed or increased on the earth. And then at the end of those 150 days, the water starts to drain off. And we'll talk more about this timeline here in just a little bit. It says that the waters receded continually from the earth. 
Now, to allow all of this water to drain from what are now our continents, it would need somewhere to go, right? And it's been postulated that the breaking up of the fountains of the deep would leave empty space that could be filled by this receding water. And the breaking up of the fountains of the deep would lead to their collapse in on those reservoirs that used to be underwater. And that would create what we now know as our oceans. So that's one way that we can approach this. Those vast underwater reservoirs collapsing, opening up space for this water to drain off of our continents. We know that erosion and deposition are very effective agents of geological change. But we got to see just how quickly layers of sediment could be laid down when Mount St. Helens erupted in 1980. And since then, scientists have used that devastated area surrounding Mount St. Helens as a miniature model for how the volcanic activity of the flood may have changed the Earth's topography. It's very interesting to look at this case. And there are a few key points that scientists use the Mount St. Helens case to illustrate. We're going to go through these three points. The first is how rapidly sediment layers can form. You know, we get this conditioning in our schools that tell us that sediments are laid down over hundreds and millions and, you know, however long they want it to be, really. And that is just not the case. We have proof from the Mount St. Helens case that sediments can be deposited in these thin layers very quickly. Geologists have documented up to 400 feet of new strata that were formed at this site since the 1980 eruption. These sheets of sediment were formed during and after this catastrophe by airfall, volcanic rocks, landslides, and even depositions from streamwater. One deposit resulted in the creation of a 25-foot-thick, finely laminated unit in a matter of hours. 25 feet of sediment in only hours. You know, this really flips the current dogma upside down. The second point that this Mount St. Helens case illustrates is how rapid erosion can carve into sediments. We all know that, you know, rivers and everything are carved by water flowing through that area. And it's interesting to me that both secular scientists and creation scientists, those who believe the biblical account, both agree that rivers, canyons, those kind of geological features were formed by erosion. Now, we have very different ideas on how long that took. Since the 1980 eruption blocked the original passage of the Toodle River, it quickly carved a new course. And a later smaller eruption in 1982 led to the carving of a new canyon in that area up to 140 feet deep. And it was dubbed the Little Grand Canyon. And it's roughly a 140th scale version of the real Grand Canyon. And this provided evidence that erosion can be very fast under the right conditions. And the global flood that we see in the text of the Bible would have provided ample water for these canyons, including the Grand Canyon, to be carved out in a matter of weeks. Our third point that Mount St. Helen serves to illustrate is how rapidly the ecosystem bounces back after a catastrophe. Within the first year after the eruption, the first plant life began to repopulate that barren lunar-like surface. Today, only 40 years after this blast, the 60-kilometer area is covered by a lush forest. You know, it's pretty much all come back, and it's strong. 
It's possible Noah and his family witnessed a similar kind of rapid recovery in the years following the flood. So this data from the Mount St. Helens eruption has supported the biblical view of catastrophism. And it's refuted the claims of uniformitarianism by demonstrating how quickly volcanic activity and water can change a landscape. It doesn't take those millions of years to form the geological formations that we see today. Under the right conditions, which the flood provides, that can be done in a matter of weeks. But what's somewhat more perplexing, at least to me, are these immense canyons and crevices that we find in the ocean floor. Those can't be carved by erosion, right? Because they're already underwater. There's not really a lot of flow through there. So what do we do with that? Well, there had to be something else at play there. You know, we may say, well, that could be the breaking up of the fountains of the deep. When those fountains broke up, they left these huge canyons in the bottom of the ocean. You know, that's possible. Possibly the dramatic shift in the Earth's crust that left these crevices. And these are many times deeper than the Grand Canyon. I mean, when I tell you they're massive, I mean like dwarf the Grand Canyon kind of massive. Verse 4, Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the seventeenth day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. This verse gives us both when and where the ark came to rest. Although we're not sure if this is the same Mount Ararat that we have named that today. And I've got a graphic for you showing the location of Mount Ararat up towards Armenia. It's actually in Turkey, but it's real close up there. The red pin that you see on that modern map is Mount Ararat. And that would be right here on this map. This is what it would have looked like, uh, I think it was the 8th century BC. So this is where Mount Ararat is. Now, there are a lot of people, even today, that are convinced that the ark rested on that Mount Ararat. There is a fair amount of anecdotal evidence that points to that location for the ark. There are records from both the Babylonians and the Greeks of people claiming to have seen the ark on Mount Ararat. And there's a whole host of sources who claim to have seen the ark here. And I'll really quickly run through a list of some of these sources. In 275 BC, Barosus, a Chaldean priest, claims to have seen it. In 30 BC, Hieronymus, an Egyptian. In the first century BC, Nicholas of Damascus. In 70 AD, Josephus wrote about the Ark being here. In 1254, Hathon, who was an Armenian king. And in the 13th century, Marco Polo references this location for the Ark, which has made everyone take for granted that the Ark is on this Mount Ararat. In 1916, some Russian aviators spotted something on the mountain that looked to be irregular. And they reported that to the czar, and he took a keen interest in it, but the revolution kind of took precedence, and they never were able to go back and investigate that. In 1901 to 1904, George Hagopian visited. In 1952 and 1955, Navarro visits. But he died in 1960, and nothing really ever came of that. In the 1970s, Ed Davis, Ed Hyling, George Jamal, and others were said to have visited. And in February 20th of 1993, CBS aired a primetime special with photos of the Ark on this Mount Ararat. Now, all of those stories 
may be true. But it's hard to corroborate any of these stories. You can't prove any of them. So it really is anecdotal evidence at this point. And there is one piece of evidence that calls all of these anecdotes into question. And it's textual evidence. So I I think we should take a look at that. Now, I want to be clear. How many of you would just absolutely be on fire for Jesus if they discovered and proved that the ark was on top of this Mount Ararat? Okay. It wouldn't change a whole lot, would it? You know, we talk about this and it's interesting to look at, but it it shouldn't really sway our faith one way or another, right? I believe that the ark is on what Moses called Mount Ararat. Now, whether that's the same one we have today, I don't know, but it is somewhere. And some people think it's going to be discovered in our future. Now, let's look at this textual evidence that challenges the Mount Ararat location of the ark. When you come to Genesis 11, verses 1 and 2, you read, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. What are these verses telling us? They're telling us that Noah's descendants left the place where they disembarked the ark, and they traveled west, that is, from the east to the plain of Shinar. That's what it says. Shinar is where the city of Babylon was built. And Babylon has been historically predominant for all of history, basically. So we know where Babylon is. We know where the land of Shinar is. Shinar is where modern-day Hilla, Iraq, is. If you see Baghdad... Right there, it's about 50 miles south of that, just off of the Euphrates River. That's where this historical site of Babylon is located. And on this map, it's right here. Babylonia, there's the city of Babylon. Mount Ararat in Turkey, Babylon in the plain of Shinar. What direction would they have had to travel to get to Babylon? south. Well, the text says that they traveled west from the east, so that doesn't really line up with what we have in Genesis chapter 11. So that seems to be a good refutation of the modern-day Mount Ararat location of the ark. Some people are still convinced that the ark is on Mount Ararat in Turkey, and that's fine. You know, a lot of really good Bible teachers, really good scholars think that it's there. I'm not super convinced either way. Um, I I look forward to to it being found, and that'll be cool. But either way, we, we still rest on the scripture. We rest in the inerrancy of it. And whether that Mount Ararat is the same as our modern-day mountain called Ararat. It doesn't make a whole lot of difference to me. Okay, let's look at verse 5. And the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. The tops of the surrounding mountains weren't visible until roughly two and a half months after the ark came to rest. So, the ark must have been on the highest peak of them all, right? The ark comes to rest. Two and a half months later, as the waters are receding, the other mountaintops come into view. That does tell us something important. The ark is on the highest peak in the area. Mount Ararat in Turkey does satisfy that requirement, by the way. Verse 6, So it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. I'm sure that he was happy 
to be opening a window after all of those days with all of these stinky animals on the ark. So Noah's happy to be opening this window. came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark, which he had made. Then he sent out a raven, which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. And when you come to the law, you'll notice that a raven is classified as an unclean bird. It feeds on carrion, and it therefore would be considered to be unclean. So if there were floating bodies of men or of animals in the waters, the raven would have no problem perching on those, eating them, you know, sustaining itself on those bodies, and it wouldn't really have a need to come back to the ark, right? So we don't see the raven return. It says that it kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. Verse 8, he also sent out from himself a dove. A dove is a very different animal, right? Not like a raven. I don't think a dove would sit and perch on a dead body, and it certainly wouldn't eat it. So he sends out a dove also to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, and she returned into the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put his hand out and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. Noah ends up sending out three doves and one raven. The raven doesn't come back. The first dove verses 8 and 9, comes back to the ark because it couldn't find a place to rest. So evidently, the waters were still covering the land around them. And he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent the dove out from the ark. So he sends this second dove, and this second dove returns to him and brings him a freshly plucked olive leaf. And this gives him some information, right? Because this is like an intelligence gathering operation, sending these dove out. There is, by this point, at least some vegetation growing back somewhere. Could be on the mountaintops, could be lower on the sides of the mountains, not sure. But there is some type of vegetation. And this is why the dove with an olive branch in its mouth is seen as like a symbol of peace, or optimism, and that's international. That's all over. Different scholars and teachers have had different views on the extent to which vegetation on the earth was destroyed. Some suppose that all vegetation was wiped out during the flood, and others think that some of it could have survived the floodwaters. It has been shown that the oceans have become saltier over time. So in the past, there was a lower salt content in the ocean than there is today. And this, coupled with the fact that the water from the vapor canopy would have been fresh water, and probably this mixture of water in the flood was of a very low salinity. We do know that many plants survived the flood simply because we have plants today, right? So we know that there were plants that came through to the other side of the flood. How did that happen? It's possible that seeds were preserved in the stomachs of herbivorous animals that died in the flood. And in such a sweet irony, Charles Darwin actually did some study on the preservation of seeds in the stomachs of dead animals. And he was surprised at how viable those seeds were after the animals had been dead for quite a long time. I just thought that was funny. It's also likely that Noah actively worked 
to preserve certain types of useful plants aboard the ark. They could have served as food for the animals. And in Genesis 9.20, it says that Noah planted a vineyard. So he obviously had access to grape seeds. And he probably had access to a host of other seeds as well to help repopulate the earth. Now, we do see that dove bringing back an olive leaf. And it specifies that it was an olive leaf. So there had to be an olive tree outside the ark that was viable enough to produce leaves. This leaf was found only a week after Noah sent out the last dove who didn't find any dry land. We do know that olive trees are extremely robust, and they can even survive for a time underwater. And it's reasonable to believe that this olive tree did survive the waters of the flood and was uncovered on a mountainside. This would mean that the waters covered it later. If it was on the mountainside, the waters would cover it later, and they would uncover it sooner. So it wouldn't have had to have been submerged for the whole time, just a while. Olive trees are very tough. We must also not forget that it is well within God's abilities to hasten, to speed up the sprouting and growing process to provide for the humans and animals that he protected through the flood. That is a possibility, and we can't discount that. He sped up the plant's growth when he first created them. And we talked about that in chapter one. And he certainly could have done that here. But, you know, while it's a possibility, I don't think that it's necessary to make sense of this text. Verse 12. So he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return again to him anymore. So by this time, the dove doesn't even return to Noah, which means that he's found a place to rest and he's found food to sustain himself. So by this time, the receding water has revealed a good portion of land. And there evidently was some viable vegetation that inhabited that land. And it came to pass in the 601st year, In the first month, on the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed, the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. I am sure that Noah was glad to get that cover off the ark. Fresh air for the first time in now over a year. It's like getting out and stretching your legs after a long car ride times 20. I'm sure he was excited for this. But notice that Noah doesn't actually leave the ark yet. He doesn't leave the ark until after God tells him to do so. I have no doubt that it was uncomfortable in the ark. Probably stunk. It probably was not the most pleasant of existences. But Noah waits until God tells him to move. God does lead us into uncomfortable situations sometimes. Sometimes more often than we would care for. And it's okay to be uncomfortable where we are. It's when you're heated up that the impurities can be plucked out. Like the fire that melts gold exposes the impurities in it. Peter talks about this in the first chapter of his first epistle. Don't rush out of an opportunity God has placed you in just because it's uncomfortable. Sure, there are times to move. There are times to make a change. Noah was patient. Then God spoke to Noah, 
saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife, and your sons, and your sons' wives with you. A year and 17 days earlier, God had called to Noah, come into the ark. Now he commands Noah, go out of the ark. These commands are complementary to each other. And they remind us of the commands of Jesus Christ. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And Mark sixteen fifteen, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Come to me, go out to the world. Those are the commands of Christ. We go into Christ for salvation and we go out into the world to evangelize. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, and whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. What was the directive there in verse 17 to the animals? Be fruitful and multiply. That's what the animals would do when they went back out into the earth. And this is the same phrase that God used in reference to the sea creatures and birds in Genesis 1.22 and to man in Genesis 1.28. And he will again repeat this directive, be fruitful and multiply, to Noah and his family at the beginning of chapter 9. Now, we're going to direct our attention to the chronology of the flood, the timeline of events. So different commentators tend to have slightly different views concerning the exact chronology of the flood. But this will give you a good starting point. So I've got this table up for you. And it shows us some of the important events and dates associated with them. So we'll look through here. Noah entered the ark on the 10th day of the second month. And seven days later, the rain began. So Noah sat in the ark with his family, no rain for seven days. The rain began, and after 40 days of heavy rain, it stops. There's still water covering the earth, but the heavy rain had stopped. 110 days later, the waters begin to recede off of the earth. So there was that peak where the waters were as high as they were going to get, and then they start receding. On the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark rests on the top of Mount Ararat. There's still water surrounding them, but the ark found a footing towards the top of Mount Ararat as the waters continued receding. Seventy-four days after that, the other mountaintops become visible, which again tells us that they were rested on the highest mountain in the region. Then, forty days later, Noah sends out the raven. He waits a week, and sends out the first dove, waits another week, and sends out the second dove. And he probably waits another week before sending out the third dove. Finally, on the first day of the first month, the new year, Noah sees dry land for the first time in about a year. All that time that the waters were receding down the mountainsides, and Noah was waiting for God to tell him to move. All of that time would have given time for the ecosystems to start making their comeback. 
Remember, the ark is resting on the 17th day of the seventh month, and they don't get out of the ark until the second month in the 27th day. So they're stationary, not floating in water anymore, for several months before God instructs them to leave the ark. That's patience. So there were seven days that they waited in the ark. The water prevails on the earth for 150 days. And this probably means that the waters rose for those 150 days. Then it's another 163 days until Noah sees dry land. And another 57 days until the land is dry enough for God to tell Noah to leave the ark. Altogether, they're on the ark for 377 days. And that's a year and 17 days. And it's worth noting here that they're using 30-day months, 12 months of 30 days, 360-day years. And that's consistent in Genesis. It's consistent in Revelation. So when you're looking at prophecy, you're hone in on that 360-day year. So they were aboard this ark, this big barge with all these animals for just over a year, a year and 17 days. And now I want to call your attention to that date that's highlighted in red. Probably wondering what that was all about. We find reference to this date in chapter 8, verse 4. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. And we ask ourselves, why did the Holy Spirit see it fit that we know the exact day that the ark came to rest? Why is that? Well, we need a little bit of background to see this all unfold before us. The Jews have two calendars. They have a civil calendar and they have a religious calendar. The civil calendar originated in Genesis with creation. And this is what the author of Genesis would be using in our text this morning, the civil calendar. The religious calendar was instituted by God in the first Passover. And we find reference to that in Exodus 12 in the first couple verses. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. That's the institution of the religious calendar. The civil calendar started at Tishri, and the religious calendar started at Nisan. Nisan is the month of the Passover. You know, in Exodus 12, we see that. And it just so happens that each of these months, Tishri and Nisan, are the inverse of each other. And what I mean by that is Tishri, first month of the civil calendar, seventh month of the religious calendar. Nisan, first of the religious calendar, seventh month of the civil calendar. You see how that kind of works? So when the author of Genesis 8-4 writes that the ark rested on the 17th day of the seventh month using his Genesis or civil calendar, he's talking about the 17th of Nisan on the religious calendar. I know it's confusing. Bear with me. We're bringing it home. God instructs the Israelites in Exodus 12 to kill the Passover lamb on the 14th of Nisan. We know that Jesus is our Passover lamb. He is the lamb that was slain on our behalf. And his death fulfilled the Passover. And he was crucified on Passover of that year, the 14th of Nisan. So Jesus was crucified on Passover, 14th of Nisan. How long was he in the grave? Three days. So his resurrection occurred on what day? The 17th of Nisan. The 17th day of the seventh month. Now, when you read Genesis 8, 4, 
you realize that the ark rested on the anniversary of Christ's resurrection in advance. Noah's new beginning on that barren earth occurred on the anniversary in advance of our new beginning in Christ. And this is remarkable because that's not something that you can add to the text later. When Jesus is crucified, we're going to go back and insert this into the Torah that Moses wrote. That's not possible. This text of the Torah was codified thousands of years before Christ came and fulfilled what was written here. There is no way to contrive this after the fact. It is a fingerprint of the Holy Spirit in the text. It's intrinsic to the text. You see, the seven feasts of the Torah were all designed by God to commemorate in advance the work of Jesus Christ. In Leviticus 23, you'll find the Feast of First Fruits. This feast was to be observed the morning after the Shabbat that follows Passover. To be observed the morning after the Shabbat, Saturday, that follows Passover. The Passover was specified as the 14th day of the first religious month, Nisan, seventh civil month. So the Passover could obviously fall on any day of the week, right? It's nailed to the 14th of Nisan. The Shabbat that comes after that would always be a Saturday. The following morning, what we would call Sunday, would be the Feast of First Fruits. What happened on that day of the Feast of First Fruits of the Crucifixion Week, Passion Week? That's when Jesus rose from the dead. One Sunday morning, on the Feast of First Fruits, as the smoke was rising from the temple, there were some women discovering an empty tomb. Jesus Christ, our first fruits, had conquered death. 1 Corinthians 15.20 says, But now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Remarkable. Remarkable. Now, as we wrap up, we'll throw this in there. We tend to view this account of the flood through the lens of a children's storybook. We have this picture in our heads of a giraffe and an elephant with their heads sticking out of the ark, all smiling away, very happy, and Noah's waving to the shore, bye. Everybody's smiling. There's a bright sun in the sky. The waters are calm. And that's the picture that we have of this judgment. When we give our kids that picture, we do them a great disservice. That's so bad. This was not a happy time for anyone, even God. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. And he wills that all men should come to repentance. We do such a disservice to our kids when we present them with that image of a happy flood. It doesn't convey the gravity of the situation. The flood was a judgment from God on the whole world. The waters were littered with rotting flesh. The text says that all flesh on the earth died. Did Noah hear the cries of those who were trapped outside the ark as the waters rose? Maybe. Just terrible. It was a gruesome event. It was a judgment from God. And you know what's even more sobering than that? 
is that God is going to judge the world again. Just because you're living after the flood doesn't mean that you won't be held to God's holy standard. Everyone will be judged according to God's holiness. You know, it's easy to look around and see other people who are doing worse things than you are. Like, oh, I'm fine. I'm, I'm better than that guy over there. That's not it at all. We will be judged according to a holy God. But here's the thing. You can actually decide how you'll be judged by God. Hear me out. You'll either be judged according to your works or according to the work of Christ on the cross. Those are the two options, but you get to decide. When God looks at you, does he see a filthy sinner or a precious child? Are you darkened by your sin or are you purified in the blood of Jesus Christ, the lamb that was slain for us? In John three eighteen and 19, Jesus says, He who believes in him, speaking of himself, is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. We must trust in Jesus every day for our salvation. There is still a judgment ahead for each one of us. And I don't want to be judged according to my works. I want to be judged based on the fact that I'm covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, the Holy Son of God. That's how I want to be seen when God looks at me. I want to be judged according to what Christ has already done on my behalf. And when we look at that, we can't help but think, what a display of love. What a display of love from the Father that he would allow his son to take my place. Don't let that opportunity pass you by this morning. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's close our study this morning in a word of prayer.